everyone, this is Teresa and welcome to episode 5 of Talking with Tea. I am so excited to share with you today's episode with my good friend Jane Sun, where we talk about our experiences with mental health, dating, being fetishized as an Asian American woman, the concept of immigrant debt, and how our personal and historical histories tie in together with the recent rise of anti-Asian hate crimes and the Atlanta shootings. This episode is the second episode that I'm releasing in April in honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so I do want to give a quick trigger warning before we get into the episode. There will be mention of sexual assault and violence as we speak about our experiences, especially when discussing about the anti-Asian hate crimes that have happened in the last few months. So please, remember to take care of yourselves and grant yourself space to breathe and process everything that is being discussed. So with that said, Jane is going to introduce herself and share a fun fact about peppermint tea, and then we'll jump right into the discussion for today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Let's get right into it. So today I have with me baby Jane. (laughs) That's how I know you. That's like how you were introducing me. But um, could you give us a quick like intro to who you are, maybe how we met? (laughs) Sure, sure. God, who am I? These days I don't really know. Um, I've actually learned recently that it's a best accessibility practice to describe yourself because of people like if they can't see, and this is a podcast. So I am a uh, small Asian woman with a baby face. I'm very short and I'm wearing a black turtleneck and I'm wearing a little bit of makeup to cover up my mask, me. And how, who am I though, for real? I My day job is, <laughs> Working in an arts nonprofit called Creative Capital, uh, we support individual artists with financial and advisory support. And uh, my hobby, I guess, is dance. I mean, the <laughs> pandemic has made it really complicated to like call myself a dancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but my hobbies, mostly my side gigs, if you will, are like dancing and talking about social justice, which mm-hmm. is a really interesting. It's, it's a time. It's a time to be an Asian woman talking about racial justice in the world. Um, and we met via, I want to say Jane Tang, which explains the nickname Baby Jane, mm-hmm. because Jane Tang and I were on Synchronic together and somebody was like, well, one of you has to get a nickname. So I became Baby Jane for the rest of my time on Synchronic. Uh, shout out Synchronic Dance Team. And we were also on Serendipity together my mm-hmm. freshman spring. So that must have been God. 2015. My fun fact about peppermint tea, which might not be mine to share, is that in Morocco, or I think in Marrakesh is where I learned this, is that it's traditional to have people over for three rounds of mint tea with like fresh mint leaves. And it was really lovely to have that. It's been about two weeks since the Atlanta shootings. Yeah. And that was super heavy, super hard um, for me personally. And I know for a lot of other Asian Americans, um, Asian American women, especially. Um, and so I think we'll start there and, you know, check in, see how we're feeling about everything and you know, all the thoughts yeah. and everything that comes with something as horrific as that. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess I want to kick it off if we're going to start on this topic. Like, I don't know about you and I know you probably do a pre-recording like trigger warning, but I feel like 
there's always this moment when things like bad news happens and you see it on your newsfeed where you're like, fuck, it would have been nice if somebody warned me that like this was the first piece of content I was going to consume the moment I opened my eyes today. So obviously for the listeners want to be like, cool, we're going to talk about some shit. And if you're recording that pre beforehand, that's totally cool. Um, I love that. But I think like I have been completely disembodied from my physical body since I moved back to New York. Um, I was living in the Bay for the last five months, saving up some money, saving on rent with my parents. And the hate crime started happening. The like Asian attack started happening in early February around mm -hmm. the Bay and LA and New York. But we were hearing a lot of them coming out of SF, right? Like really bad things happening to like the Thai grandpa, whose name, Fisha, I can't pronounce the Thai names and I feel awful. Um, so please forgive me for butchering that. But the Thai grandfather who was killed in SF was the beginning of, of February. And after that February moment, um, actually sort of one of the anti-Asian attacks that happened in LA Chinatown was my friend's cousin's grandma-in-law or something like extended far away, but somebody passed who they don't know to this day if the reason why she passed was because she was hurt in the streets in LA Chinatown or if she just died of natural causes. So that was the first piece of news I got. And that was February, I wanna say like 10th. It was a couple days before Chinese New Year. Mm -hmm. And I had to take the next day off. I was like, this is too real. It's like right here. It's one of my closest friends in my entire life. I'm friends with her entire family. It just got so real so fast that I had to take a day off work. And then I took the Friday off that week for Chinese New Year and why I hope this episode doesn't blow up because I'm about to talk some shit. My white lady boss the following week was like, you know, it feels like things are really slipping because you took two days off last week. And I was like, ma'am, Asian people across this country are dying. I don't give a shit about what's slipping through the cracks, yeah. respectfully. Like, oh I was livid. I was so angry because I didn't really talk about what was going on. I just said, I'm taking Friday off for Chinese New Year. My little brother is coming home. We're going to have Chinese New Year dinner together. Like, I can't, I'm not going to work. And to have that be said to me the following week, while more news was coming out, that week was the week that um, Ada CU on Instagram mm -hmm. shared that big post of like GoFundMe that was going to be distributed to all the organizations and it hit like 150k. I started raising awareness about the anti-Asian attacks at my workplace in early to mid-February mm. and they didn't fucking say shit until post-Atlanta. Yeah. And I was like, that's cute that you care now. You want to post on March 18th when it's popular? Yeah. Like, wow, I really hope I don't get fired. <laughs> anyway, no one's going to listen to this, Teresa. It's going to be fine. I'm like actually genuinely afraid, but I think I've decided that one of the things I'm willing to pay the price for is like, if I open my mouth to stand up for what I believe in and I were to lose an opportunity or a job, then that thing wasn't for me mm. because like, I don't think people really respect our humanity. And that's mm. exactly what's happening right now. Like people see Asians as so other and so foreign, so perpetually, they literally don't see us as humans you know, and that's so scary to me. How can you not see me as a person and give me the same level of empathy and respect that you would any other body? Hmm. Yeah. I kind of want to talk about how that treatment or that view of Asian women, um, Asian bodies, how that affects us 
in our lifetime, because I think even though now it's being blown up as like, you know, all these attacks and everything, but I feel like we have all internalized all of this since we are absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Holy. I mean, (laughs) I'm like afraid this podcast episode is going to become three hours long because I could just talk about this all day with you and with other people. Like I, so I moved to New York. I'm not a New York native, but I moved to New York at 17. I turned 18 my first week of college and I was on a dating app by the time I was 18. Mm -hmm. This is when Tinder was Mm -hmm. like kind of a risque thing to do. Uh, Dating apps were like pretty popular, but it was still pretty risque. The standards weren't set. You know, there wasn't like Tinder for hookups and Hinge for relationships and Coffee Meets Bagel for I don't God knows what. But like, it was like not clear what it was about. And I didn't understand how disrespectful everybody was. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that paper cut analogy. It's death by a thousand cuts because you can't go to someone crying about a paper cut. And I have to hat tip to whoever that person is who posted it. I'm going to actually go on my phone right now and look for her IG post because I don't Mm -hmm. ever want to use anyone's words without crediting them appropriately. Mm -hmm. But this paper cut analogy really fucked me up because I was like, that's exactly what it is. When you're an Asian woman, you basically get told you do not exist. Your image does not exist in the physical, in the media realm, in the books that you read frequently, in the schooling that you receive, in all of the things that we consume. Only recently, I wanna say since I've been in college, has Asian representation even remotely been a thing. I saw Crazy Rich Asians three times just to like bump up that box office number. But like also Crazy Rich Asians is hella problematic because it paints Asians as only rich, only East Asian. The only people who are darker skinned in that movie are service workers and those kinds of people who are like, you know, the lower class in Singapore. And that's also a problem. And I just like, you know, there's never been a moment in my life. There's never been a moment where I was like, I trust that this person is looking at me because they see me as a whole human being. Mm -hmm. In every interaction I go into, I feel like I'm assuming, and again, what is this if not just societal conditioning? I'm assuming that this person sees me as an Asian body, an Asian woman, and that means something to them. That's coded either sexually or objectified or treats you like you're dirt. I go into every interaction having to plan for what that person's projections of Mm -hmm. me are. And that really showed up when I started dating around New York City. And then examining, you know, all of the hideous dynamics, which I know this is sort of the general topic of what we're going to talk about today, is like, there's something really hideous and, and subtle in that every single time I talk to somebody, especially in the romantic or physical sexual context, that I don't know if you see me as a person. I don't know. I have to prepare that you see me as an object or an idea or a fetish before you ever see me as a person. Wow. That is a hundred percent how I feel about showing up in spaces. Like I'm always so conscious of how others view me and if they 
see me as like an object or if they fetishize me in those spaces. Um, And when you were saying that, like about dating, I was like, so then who does see us as human? And, you know, I'm going to take this leap and say that I don't even think Asian men. Hard no, (laughs) hard no. The toxic masculinity in Asian men from being de-emasculated. What is is that de-emasculated? I can't think of the word. There's like a word for it. They've been stripped of their masculinity. So they just like double down. There are two types of Asian boys. And this is me being general. This is me generalizing. So God forgive me. Right. There's the hyper-masculine Asian boys who look like total meatheads because they have something <laughs> to prove. They've taken all of the all of the creatine in the goddamn world and their arms are the size of my head. <laughs> what are you trying to prove, sir? And the second guy is the like low-key soft boy. And like those guys get you, man. You think mm-hmm. they're going to be a good dude and their insidious misogyny is just worse because you're oh. like, damn, I thought you were reading the woke books, <laughs> but no, you're just as bad as the rest of them. Yep. <laughs> I like, and I hate to say it because I like, I dated, I've dated, uh, I think I've dated every race. I actually like, maybe not every, but I've dated, like I've, I have been made fun of for only dating white men. We can get into this anytime okay just okay. flip the switch and say the word okay. I've been told I'm one of those Asian girls who only likes white guys <laughs> right and that is a stereotype that we have been through and it brings me visceral discomfort to this day I'm still working on what the fuck it means mm. it still brings me discomfort to see that Asian woman white man dynamic walking through the park the mall the MoMA whatever mm-hmm. it's it's like something like is that me is that what it looks like when I'm walking out in the world, you know, the last person I dated was a white guy who, I mean, bless his heart, I had to explain fetishization to him just because, like, he was like, why would someone do that? And I was like, you know, it's sweet that you have no idea why somebody <laughs> would do that, but it's also, like, jarring. Yeah. Because, like, that is a man who has never been looked at for anything other than his personhood. Wow. And like, nobody is coming to him being like, well, I assume you're going to be docile and submissive in bed. So I want to fuck you. Let's find Mm -hmm. out. And like dating other races has only kind of proven to me that we are all battling, especially if you're a person of color, we're all battling what people are expecting of us and stereotyping us Mm. for. And I think that I saw that a lot, but I also think that Asian men kind of like flip that switch where they feel like they have so much to compensate for and their bitterness towards the sort of sexual objectification of Asian women and the sexual desire in society towards Asian women turns them into our enemies Mm -hmm. where they're like, well, you get attention. So I have to bring you down a couple pegs. Mm -hmm. I'm like, bro, why? (laughs) Don't do that. A hundred percent. I wonder about when you date white men, like how how are you in those situations? Because if we all, like, like when we already are so cognizant of like how we appear, how is that when you're in a relationship with this person, like 24 seven, I'm sure those thoughts come up a lot. Jesus. Well, okay. So I'll give you, I'll give you two disclaimers. This person is not, I'm no longer with this person, but I have deep love and respect for them. Mm -hmm. And we dated for the entirety of the pandemic. Well, we were never like together, together outside of the pandemic. We maybe went on three dates before the world shut down. Mm-hmm. And so I was not hypercognizant mm. of like what the world thought of us because the world was, we hang out with each other and each other's housemates. And that was like one of the only people I saw when I was in New York um, before I moved back. And 
that was lovely, but also suffocating because like, how can I show you, how can I show you my world? Not just as an Asian person, but also like as a dancer, as the stuff that I love to do in New York City and the things that I pursue and the concerts that I go to and the art shows that I want to take you to. I can't take you to any of that. It's just like us two in our little bubble during COVID, but it is, I am more selective. I'm extremely selective and I'm trying to become even more selective <laughs> with the people that I date and give my time to because I already don't trust you off the bat. And like, people are like, well, you have to open up and give them a chance. And I'm like, no, no, I've given enough chances. I did that. I mean, I've literally been on the dating apps on and off, on and off, on and off for the last seven years. We're coming up on seven years of me living in New York. God bless me, I guess. But like, I can't fathom going on a date and not immediately having to figure out how to slither in a question about, do you only date Asian women? If you bring up backpacking through Southeast Asia, close the tab, I'm going home. Yep. Close the tab, close the tab. Uh -huh. If you ask me how to cook Chinese food and you haven't even bought me dinner yet, close the tab, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm not your wife, I'm not your maid, I'm not your chef, teacher, cook person. The amount of people who are like, oh my God, can you teach me how to make Chinese food? Mm -hmm. It's just like, can you teach me how to dance when you put it in your bio that you're a dancer? Like, no bitch, pay me for my labor. Mm -hmm. Like, no, <laughs> it's cute that you want to learn something about my culture or me, but how do I know that you're not doing it to fetishize me or to play into these ideas of what kind of woman a dancer is or what kind of woman an Asian woman is or a Chinese woman is? You haven't proven shit to me Mm. so I won't give you the time of day until you do right right and like mm. I got really lucky this last time around like I have to say there was a period of time where I was sort of like seeing a couple people and all of these people really like proved to me from the first time I met them that they were like at least with the shits like they were like not they were people who had examined their relationship to society as a whole mm. and were very interested in talking about it mm. um and those were the last two guys I dated and they were both actually forgive me because one of them is now a non-binary person. So two people I dated and like, I learned so much about what my standards were mm -hmm. because before I had just been giving any damn person the time of day. Mm -hmm. And like when you're on the dating apps being objectified and over-sexualized like that, you have to come up with such a complex system of vetting the labor that goes into checking and vetting every person to make sure they're not a fucking creep mm -hmm. is exhausting. Like I have to delete it every third day because I'm just like, that's enough. That's yeah. enough. I'm tired. Yeah. That sounds super exhausting to always have to have these thoughts running through your mind. And like, I also could not stand being on dating <laughs> for more than like three days as well. Three days max. <laughs> It was too much, like way too much, um, especially in Queens, like the <laughs> amount of like, <laughs> like the, the two types of Asian guys that you just described, Ooh. like that's in Queens. Oh, I oh, know. <laughs> mm, I'm so sorry. I live in Brooklyn. The, <laughs> yeah, selection, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. the selection is good, but men that's still ain't cool. shit. Right. still <laughs> ain't shit. Okay. That's right. where I'm at. Um, I wonder also how do you think you show up in relationships conditioned as an Asian woman? Recently, you've had like, I guess we could say like higher standards, like you're mm -hmm. more picky about who you date. But in the past, mm -hmm. 
how did you navigate that? Like, I think Asian women are taught to like, kind of accept the bare minimum sometimes. Oh my God. Teresa, you're asking the hard hitters here. (laughs) My conditioning, (laughs) ma'am. All right. I'll, I'll start with one thing. I think that my impulse and actually like something I've always caught about myself is I'm so desperate to be the opposite of what people expect of me. Wow. My prove me wrong, prove you wrong streak is so intense. It's kind of a little too much. Uh-huh. Like people said I couldn't do this. I did it. You know what I mean? Like I, people expect me to be submissive and quiet. So I am loud as fuck and very vulgar. Sorry to the parents. You know, like I'm like, I'm thinking about if anybody ever heard this, they'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, yeah. but like, I have been for most of my life extremely loudly outspoken, probably since I was like in high school. In high school, I found a group of people, a lot of whom were also Asians and Asian women particularly. And a lot of us kind of realized that we we were loud and accepted as this loud presence. Um, I have a really dear friend of mine who's an Asian woman, also a Chinese woman, who is on who is pursuing a career on Broadway and mm-hmm. she's been a performer her whole life and she's like who is going to believe in me if not me mm-hmm. Broadway doesn't want me there if I don't believe in myself if I don't sing as loud as I can and dance my fucking ass off no one's gonna cast me but I have to believe that I am worthy of this slot this wow. spot on the cast and her friendship I, I mean I've been her friend since we were like 12 so it's over a decade now I really like I absorbed a lot of this like who's gonna believe in you if not you Mm-hmm. And I think that when I went into relationships as a younger person, man, I did not believe in myself at all. I was like, I will take bottom of the barrel. I will take the fucking bare minimum. I will take less than the bare minimum. You know, that's why when things feel disrespectful, when sex feels disrespectful or all this kind of shit happens, that's like in that gray area where I'm like, this isn't full on assault, but this is not fun. And then I go home and like take a hot shower and try to wipe it from my memory and file it in with the other 50 gray area incidents I've ever experienced. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, the number's probably not as high as 50, but like the numbers are up there. And then it's like the death by a thousand paper cuts, which might I add, Mm -hmm. I got the credit. Her name is Marley Sue, M-A-R-L-I-S-I-U on Instagram. This death by a thousand paper cuts, this feeling like every time I went into an interaction I tried so hard to prove people wrong that I'm not submissive and not quiet and not your little gentle oriental flower. But like, I would still find myself in these situations where things didn't really go my way or they didn't feel quite right. And I would go home with this like weird knot in my stomach, but I couldn't like go to a friend and be like, I have to report something. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing to report. You just sit there and you ask yourself like, it's me, isn't it? Like something Mm -hmm. is broken in me or something is wrong with me because I didn't speak up or because I didn't take the initiative. It's like, no, no. People, it's it's a gendered dynamic that's super intense that we can get into, but it's also a racialized dynamic because mm-hmm. I cannot divorce the fact that I'm a woman from the fact that I am Chinese. And the sexualization, the objectification, it used to be really tantalizing because that kind of attention I never really got that much of in high school and then I came to college in a huge city with my parents 3,000 miles away and was like yeah like I I was like oh my god people think I'm hot let me play into this as hard as I can because I don't care if you fetishize me I just want the attention I want the validation if my self-esteem is so low and I'm severely depressed which I was for a big chunk of college anything feels good right and like 
that gets, I mean, that was some insidious shit. And like, I think to this day, like I'm still thinking a lot about that experience and what I went through in college really informed how I approach dating now and how I even look at myself now. And so a lot of that is like therapy, mental health care. You just got to do it all, you know? Yeah. You mentioned so many parts that I want to get into. um, But the thing that I'm thinking about right now is that there is this personal aspect of what we go through, but there is also a historical aspect Mm -hmm. of it all. And it ties into, I mean, we, we can also, you know, go deeper in this, but it ties into the Atlanta shootings. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, It ties mm -hmm. into um, history of colonialism and imperialism in Asia. And just, I think sexual assault is a part of Asian American women history. Um, And it's, I think, also perpetuated by Asian men, you know, um, mm-hmm, within mm-hmm. our history and our culture. And it's hard to like divorce like the fact that we're Asian from the fact that we're women, but mm-hmm. also to divorce that history of sexual assault, you know, mm-hmm. from our bodies, which I feel like a lot of like I've been through it. Um, you mentioned you've had some experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have a ton of girlfriends who also have been through it as well. And it's very heartbreaking that this is like our reality. Um, yeah. And it's like what you mentioned before. It's like a very isolating experience to kind of yeah. like come to it and, and think yeah. like, is it me? You might not even realize until years later that that mm. thing that happened was wrong right? Mm -hmm. You can come to it and be like, holy fuck, that thing that happened was five years ago. Yeah. And then you're like stuck in that position of being like, shouldn't I be over it by now? Mm. Or blaming yourself? Or like, I don't know about you, but like I've had situations where the first response out of someone's mouth was blaming me for like, Mm. why were you drinking? Why were you doing that? Why wasn't your phone charged? Why wasn't this, that, or the other? Mm -hmm. Like the responses to sexual assault that we've been conditioned to give are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I know because I've heard those responses out of, you know, people who I love, the mouths of people I love, right? And that tells me like conditioning is deep, you know? Mm -hmm. I have to check myself if somebody ever came to me, which they have with an experience of non-consensual behavior. Like I have to to be prepared to practice saying the right thing when society only practices saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And within that dyma- dynamic, it sometimes feel feels like it's like us against the world when it's mm-hmm. like when mm-hmm. we're trying our best to go against what society is telling everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I feel like that I'm going to fucking prove you wrong streak. Like that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Like if society tells you your whole life that you're invisible and you will only amount to like the white collar model minority work or you're going to be a, a you know, a middle-class nail salon person or you know what I just like it's so hard also because the part of me that has been thinking lately a lot about the class dynamics of what happened in Atlanta the heartbreak of these people being undocumented low-income 
in this country because American imperialism destabilized their home countries, mm -hmm. Korean women, right? And traditionally, when I grew up in the Bay, everybody who owned nail salons was Vietnamese women. Why are so many Korean and Vietnamese people here in this country? It's because of American warfare. I mean, there's literally three decades of proof that Vietnam was a fucking wash. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, you know, those Vietnamese people, they only know how to do nails. Like, it's fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. It's the direct result of American imperialism mm -hmm. and, and, and anti-communism, which is just a load of, you know, bullshit. Yeah. And to watch these people get hurt and die, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I always like, I have to mention every time I say anything relating to this Asian American female experience that like, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. I grew up in a, relatively upper middle class household because my parents were white collar workers who got fast tracked green cards because of one special order that I want to say H.W. Bush signed after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests that mm -hmm. granted asylum to all students of a certain age coming in from China. Wow. Political asylum. Mm -hmm. Technically speaking, my parents are political asylees. And because of that, I have everything, right? Like my parents were dirt poor. Wow. They said, my mom told me recently that the first time she had hot running water was in 1990 when she came to get her PhD in Ohio. Hot running water. And like, I live in this great place. I've never lacked for anything. I really have so many things that are protecting my safety, mm. right? Whether that's class privilege, having a degree that I have to admit my parents paid for. Mm. I know every day that like the reason why I'm not as in danger, even though my body and my physicality is in danger every single fucking day is partially because of luck. Mm. The luck of the draw that brought my parents here on a PhD program and not as an undocumented laundry worker. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was so powerful. I think that's what, that's what makes this recent rise of anti-Asian hate crimes so heartbreaking and so hard to digest. Um, in some aspects, it does feel like an attack on like lower class Asians. And we know how hard our elders work and, and how, oh, yeah. how much they put aside their sense of self for their, the next kin, you know? Yes. Um, yes, the it, generational mm -hmm. sacrifice to watch that family. I, I like bawled my eyes out. I feel like if I talk about it, I will start crying immediately. Yeah. But like Soon-Cha Kim had those two kids and they're like, we have no next of kin in the country because we're, we're here as an act of desperation and our mother is dead. Like I, I can't even talk about it because like, what would I do? What would I do if I were that child in that situation? That 23-year-old kid or 22-year-old kid is responsible for taking care of his brother. And like, God, I hope that, you know, that the resources are given to them, but you can't, you can't replace someone's mom. Mm -mm. Money doesn't bring her back, mm -mm. you know? And like that attack was deliberate. And then to have all of this fucking media kerfuffle about, oh, you're just having a bad, like, I literally can't, oh I can't get that phrase out of my mouth because mm -hmm. like, Look, fam, undocumented Asian women are never not having a bad day. How dare you? How dare you? And to have that be the police chief of an entire fucking county 
What kind of power does this white man have? How many other people of color have suffered under his regime? Mm. We don't even know. Do they conduct secret raids on massage parlors trying to expose them as sex workers? We don't know. We don't even know if the people killed in Atlanta at the massage parlor or the salon or the spa were sex workers. Do we know? I don't think so. It became like a bit odd to me that it was automatically conflated, these two things. He shot up this massage parlor under the deranged illusion that it was sex work. What if they were just there getting their massage? Mm -hmm. I get a massage from, I I literally frequent the Asian Chinatown parlors with Chinese ladies who always speak to me in Chinese and tell me that I have too much chi, you know, whatever, (laughs) too much something, too much huo chi in my body. Why are you breaking out like this? Eat some more cooling vegetables. Like, thank you, mom. I literally go there. I frequent those places, especially when I used to dance so much. I needed it. And it was an affordable service provided to me by women who were my mom's age and my grandma's age laboring for not enough money mm-hmm. in a society that doesn't care if they live or die. And like the class thing, the race thing, the gendered thing, it all comes at this perfect nexus of this moment where, you know, like even as we talk, today is April 1st, which is the first day of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And I have to be honest with you, initially when you approached me with this idea, I was like, God, Teresa, I don't know if I can do that. Like, Mm -hmm. I know that this month is going to be heavy and Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be prepared to draw some boundaries about me and my phone usage because Mm -hmm. I'm still using it as a proxy for socializing with people because there is still a pandemic going on. Mm -hmm. It's so heavy watching all of this happen and seeing that you can't escape, right? You can never rip off your skin and not be a Chinese woman mm-hmm. for a day. Yeah. Um, I don't know the right phrasing for it, but um, one of my classmates the other day shared that um, something like, you cannot heal from trauma that is still ongoing. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so many people are like, just take a breather and then come back to work. <laughs> No, no. Breather from what? <laughs> Breather from society? You couldn't even yeet me to Mars because Elon Musk's colonizer ass would still be there. I'm... There's nowhere for me to go. I can't take a break from this world. I yeah. cannot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The audio balance on this episode, by the way, <laughs> is going to be some fuck shit. I'm so sorry. I yell a lot. As I said, loud Asian woman here. I'm leaning into my identity Mm -hmm. as not your submissive Asian woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then to get back to the fetishization part, some people are like, oh, good. I like that even better. And I'm like, I will kill you. (laughs) Oh, my God. People really said that back to me. I'm like, I'm really really like not docile, not quiet, not interested in playing into those fantasies. And they're like, ooh, that's hot. Ooh. Why is that your first response? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you something, actually, if I could turn the tables on you. Of course. How do you feel like dating is a different experience for you, um, whether that's like sexual orientation or whether that's your personality being very different from mine? What is the dating experience at large like for you navigating that as an Asian woman? And like, do you think that's changed in the last couple of years? 
since, you know, I feel like when we met, we were like 16 and 17 or 17 and 18. Like we were whole ass teenagers. Uh-huh. And I feel like I really accelerated my process of growing a backbone or raising my standards because of the events of the last year and kind of gratefully because of my last ex. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'll never go back to someone who doesn't treat me and my culture and my lived experience with respect. Mm. But it took me until I was 23. So, <laughs> you know, some people are, and I'm still on that journey. I'm not finished, but I just wanted to hear a little bit. I think I have a very similar experience. Um, I think it was only until recently that I really like put my foot down and was like, no, I'm not going to accept the bare minimum. Like you are going to be my standard or you're not going to be in my life. Like, I think that was a very recent um, change of mind. Uh, Definitely after going to therapy and like being in this pandemic. Amen. (laughs) Going to therapy changes lives, people. It really does. (laughs) And there's no, there's no replacement. I hate to say this because it infuriates me every day. There's no replacement for therapy. Like you can't, I think that it's extremely difficult because therapy is so financially inaccessible and insurance is a godforsaken hellscape. Yeah. But I've not found a self-help book or a journaling, meditation, yoga, practice, podcasts. Like, I just haven't found anything that does the job of a therapist being like, Jane, that's your internalized shame speaking. Yep. Oh, <laughs> Christ. A podcast <laughs> won't yell it back to you like that. <laughs> I think, though, I don't know if this is because I started going to therapy, but I've been really, like feeling those Instagram accounts with yeah. um, like just like helpful tips, way to like rethink your childhood trauma, um, mm-hmm. like ways to like um, soothe your inner child. I feel like those accounts have been super helpful. Um, yeah. But it was only after I went to therapy that I found it. <laughs> so it's like, well, <laughs> because our phones are listening to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I think it's just like, it's so different when somebody knows you and can call you out on your bullshit so effectively or listen to you. And then if you want, get called out on your bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. consensually, very yes. consensually. It's like, I pay you good money to tell me like, <laughs> this is actually the root cause of this. And I have to be honest with you. I was super, super skeptical about this inner child like concept. Oh. I was like, this is some saw new age bullshit. I'm an, I'm an extreme skeptic. And I admit to this being not one of my greater qualities. Like mm-hmm. I was not raised religiously. I have very little like faith and belief in things that aren't proven by science because both my parents are PhDs in chemistry. So I think mm-hmm. it's just the household and the conditioning. Okay. But I was like, not a huge believer. And then recently I was like, wow, what if you thought about this situation that I was in, like you're trying to sue the 10 year old. What if it was trying to sue you as a 10 year old? Or like this feeling that you're feeling this embarrassment, this hesitation is because somebody once embarrassed you as a child and you felt so bad that you never wanted to experience that again, boom. And I was like, oh, I guess I believe now. (laughs) I'm glad that like worked out for you. Like that kind of opened your eyes to it, right? 
It does and it doesn't, right? Because again, it's like hard for me. There's two people I want to shout out really quickly, if, if I can. There's Yumi Sakugawa, who runs that amazing yes. account where I it's just like them. all caps, yes. sketches, reading me for filth every day. And it was like, what would you say to your inner child if you were not afraid? <laughs> Holds mic to face. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Yes. Uh-huh. And the other account is Brown Girl Therapy, who I just mm. screenshotted. I just uh, shared her post today, but I, oh man, she says this thing that like breaks my heart every time, which is like, so many of us are healing generational wounds that our parents don't have the luxury to heal. So many mm. of us are on a higher emotional healing journey than our parents. And it's so hard to watch them be unhealed and unaddressed because they refuse to do it. And they, they can't, they can't sometimes, you know? we have the luxury of having time and money to do things like therapy. And mm. like my parents are probably just at this point in their lives, not going to invest that time and that money into themselves because they've done fine, but they don't really know how fucked up they are. Mm -hmm. And actually as an adult, semi baby adult, I feel like I can see a lot of the patterns in my parents that I witness in myself. Like, oh, that's why I do this thing that's not very good for me or not very nice to other people. This is how my parents raised me. And then they go and do it and you're like, oh, I wish I could call it out, but then they're gonna beat my ass. Yeah. You know, like, or yeah. yell at me. My parents do not do corporal punishment anymore. So, <laughs> anymore. You're 2021 and we've made it out of corporal punishment. But a hundred percent, I also feel that kind of like sadness for my parents because now that we're more um, aware of like kind of like our triggers and maybe our childhood trauma, like, you know, when we see other people doing certain things, we're like, ooh, <laughs> you got to work about on some things in your past, girl. <laughs> and you can't say that to your mom. Mm -hmm. she'll be like you said what now <laughs> like, exactly my mom is like my friend and I okay and I also like think I got really lucky because my mom has had mental illness my whole life and has been on medication damn near my whole life mm -hmm. and was reluctant but in the end accepting that like I needed therapy and I actually did go on medication at some point in college but at least she understood like that it had helped her so it could help me wow. um but I held on to that resentment for a long time that my parents didn't prepare me for like the genetic implications of having a parent who has severe depression. Wow. Like, hello, you could have given me a heads up before you shipped me off to college 3000 miles away. Yeah. And that resentment after years of therapy is, is still there. Mm. I'm still uncovering new levels of like, what if my parents had listened to me or believed me a little better, a little more when I was really going through it my first two years of college. Mm. Maybe I would have, you know, made better grades or had more friends or you know whatever and like I always do that what if thing and I'm trying to be like you know what I lived a good life I had a good college experience it was extremely challenging but all in all I took away a lot from it and I think the fact that my mom has a history and present of mental illness makes it so much easier for me to be like this is what I'm feeling and I think it might be this or this is what I'm feeling and I know I have you know clinically diagnosed anxiety so I'm gonna just lay down real quick or sit outside real quick or you know tracking your moods your emotions is a skill i did not learn until very late in life because chinese household culture is don't feel anything smush it down just mm -hmm. smash it in there mm -hmm. and then one day you wake up and you're like exploding at the seams mm -hmm. and you're asking yourself wow that's so odd 
this one little tiny thing like blew me up yeah wrecked me Mm -hmm. and it was like oh actually it was all that internalized bullshit that you didn't deal with for the last 20 years hi Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Um, Can I ask about how your mom kind of like explained her depression to you? (laughs) She didn't. (laughs) She didn't. How did How did that conversation? Yeah, it's it's so funny because I feel like my mom would either be like delighted I'm talking about this or absolutely kill me for talking about this on a Uh podcast. But whatever, (laughs) she's not going to listen to it. Um, When I was a child, when I was in elementary school, my mom had an episode so severe that she had to take a leave of absence from work. My dad took her on a vacation, just them two. My dad also was a frequent traveler. My dad's job required him to be out of the country two weeks out of every month. Um, and his job to this day requires him to be in China very, very frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, like I saw him for maybe a month out of every year combined, you know, like all of the all of the weeks or days, maybe a month yeah. or two out of every year combined. When I was a child, my mom was so depressed. She took a leave of absence and I once like, I just knew, right? Like I was a child and I'm the firstborn daughter of first gen immigrants. So hello, I have a lot of issues. Welcome. Um, I knew that something was wrong, that she was catatonic, that we had like, we didn't have as like much meals to eat. My grandma lived with us. She cooked for us every day. We were all fed. Um, I think that once when I was a child, like I just remember being like, something is gravely wrong and I don't know what, but I can sense it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know, but my mom told me like way later when I was going through my depressive episode at like 19 and I was home for the summer, my mom was like, it was so bad. Like every day I just like begged God not to wake up. And like, my mom's not religious. We're not religious. So like to be that, to be like begging a deity you don't believe in to please just don't let me wake up tomorrow is like a lot. And I remember hearing that the summer after my sophomore year of college and being like, oh, so this thing we have it. This thing, we have a name and and it's something we share in common, you know, because I was telling her, I had like a meltdown because I went to a dance class and I like didn't do very well. And I told her like, I don't even enjoy dancing anymore. I don't want to dance anymore. I want to quit everything. I want to like cease to exist. And, you know, suddenly she, it like clicked for her that she didn't really know the extent of how bad my depression was. And this was also before medication. I had just started going to therapy consistently because it was so fucking hard to find a therapist, all that in-network garbage. And yeah, it was, it was like really eye-opening to be 19 going on 20 and being like, you know what? I really want to try taking medication. I really want to feel like myself again after I want to say like two years, my first two years of college, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but it was that thing like that I knew as an eight-year-old seeing my mom in this catatonic state. I knew that something was wrong, but I had no name for it. And I knew that my mom had to take a pill every day or else she wouldn't be good, right? Mm -hmm. She wouldn't be functioning. And she would be like, oh, I missed my pill yesterday. No wonder I feel so strange. And I'd be like, I don't know what that is, right? As a 16-year-old, I was more likely to be like, oh, did you forget your birth control? (laughs) You know, like something like that. Like, I didn't know. And then one day it all just like clicked into place. And I remember so clearly also, I was a sophomore after DR, which is the last competition of the season for us, right? I was a sophomore going into DR weekend and I called my mom and I was like, mom, like 
I can't do this. I can't do this. And she was like, what can't you do? And I was like, I have like six papers due that I'm behind on and I have to compete all weekend and I have to socialize with 400 people. And I'm the director of a team that's going to the show at 19 years old. Had no business being a director of a team at 19, by the way. I, I had an epic, epic meltdown. And the next day, like every dutiful Asian daughter, I pulled myself together, packed my bag and got on the train, bus, whatever the hell we take to DR. I had no choice. Mm-hmm. And people tell me who were on that team that year that they were like, you held it together unbelievably well. Like you were a leader and you brought everybody together and you took people out for family dinner and everybody loved you. And it was wild looking back because I was like, I'm worthless and I hate myself and I wish I didn't exist. And everybody secretly hates me and thinks I'm a fraud and a phony and I'm a terrible everything. And I look back and I'm like, wow, how could I have ever thought that about myself? But like, that's what mental illness is, right? That's like, it gets in your head and it becomes who you are so, so deeply. And you can't divorce yourself from the illness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Part of what's hard about the things that we're talking about is that I cannot unzip my skin and stop being a Chinese woman just as much as I cannot divorce myself from my mental illness. You don't get a reprieve, you don't get a break. You know, the trauma that society inflicts upon you becomes the fuel to the fire that tells you you're worthless, you're nothing, you don't deserve anything. The imposter syndrome feeds your anxiety and it's all cycle. So you never get a reprieve from anything. And then people are like, oh God, why are you so crazy or so emotional or so whatever, right? People are very dismissive about mental mental illness if you don't like know them that well. There's some stigma attached to it still, although gratefully, I think society is really, really, really walking away from that stigma these days. Yeah. I would say it's gotten a lot better. But yeah, like how am I ever going to get a break? Can't catch a break. Yeah. I ask about um, how your mom shared that with you because- my dad also has depression, but he mm-hmm. has never like stated it. But somehow we know that he also like takes pills, right? Somehow we know gestures mysteriously into the distance. Yes. Right. Yes. And like, I wonder like what that conversation would be like, because mm. um, now going to therapy recently, my therapist has kind of said like, so you've been depressed before. Like she kind of like, yeah, you know, just assumed, right? Said yeah. it out loud and was right. like, this is a, this is a assumption that we can make about your lived experience. Exactly. And I was like, whoa, like. <laughs> <laughs> you can't call it that. It's just that weird thing that lives over my head and under my bed and in my brain all the time. But like, it doesn't have a name. No, exactly. that's what being in college my first two years was like. Wow. And I kind of, it flipped a switch because I was really lucky. I lived with Marina, who's one of my best friends. And Marina was like, Jane, you don't eat. You sleep 16 hours a day. You never get any sunlight. You're so lethargic. And all of the dishes are piling up in the sink. Mm -hmm. I love you. I'll do the dishes in the sink, but you need to figure out what the hell is going on because you're not like this. And Marielle, who also lived with me, who's going to live with me now, God Mm -hmm. bless her, was like so helpful. The two of them, I mean, they told me, Jane, put on real clothes. We're leaving the house today. Come on, let's go. Even if it's just a five minute walk to the coffee shop down the block, you need to get out of the house. Mm. And I was like, I can't, I can't move. I can't get out of bed. I can't do it. I just can't. And I had horrible anxiety about my face and my Mm. body. And it's so strange because these latest anti-Asian attacks really like 
free up to those feelings of like oh, the world is staring at you. The world is staring at you. The world is staring at you. Every person on the street has eyes made of daggers. Mm. And I used to just walk down the street being like, people are looking at me, guys. People are looking at me. They can see that I'm hideous and ugly and everything about me is broken. Like, and we would just be at Lock Alone getting coffee. Mm-hmm. Like I couldn't, I remember like so clearly being there and being like that barista thought I was so weird because I ordered my oat milk latte wrong. <laughs> and they were like, Jane, he's not, he does not care. Yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't get into my own head to say, Jane, he does not care. Mm. Couldn't do it. And on your point about being high functioning, like even with all of that, like the, the DR experience that you shared, I feel like that is the epitome of the Asian experience. just the suppression of how terrible we feel but we still show up and we do the thing but we feel terrible and we don't want to live but we're still doing the thing because that's like our responsibility that's our duty and the listeners can't hear me nodding so hard my headphones (laughs) are going to come off right now I was just talking last night to somebody a friend of mine who's Vietnamese American Mm -hmm. I was explaining to him this concept excuse me of the immigrant debt. Mm. It's the weight that you will never be able to put out, put down. Like, because my parents grew up in poverty in China and made this life for me and went up this many rungs of the social ladder, the socioeconomic ladder, nothing I ever do will compare to what they've done for me. Nothing I ever do and no amount that I ever work, no title that I ever get will compare to the work that they put in to immigrate to a country where they knew nobody, barely spoke the language, got a PhD and worked in high paying white collar jobs to be property owners, you know, that they did everything by the book. And the immigrant debt is that weight on your shoulders knowing Jane, no matter how good you are, no matter how smart you are, and you need to be better and smarter than every other person in the room, especially the mediocre white man. So you're going to shove it, grin and bear it, come to class, write your papers. Even when you want to die, Mm. you're going to show up to rehearsal and you're going to put on a smile and then you're going to go to your job or your internship that you're working because you feel like you have to, which doesn't pay. You have to do it because the weight of the debt is on top of you every second of every day. I remember graduating in 2018 and I broke down and cried on my couch in my apartment because I said to my friend, I want to say it was like one of my good closest friends from high school who actually flew out to have like a little mini grad party with me and my friend Ashley, who I was talking about earlier cried and cried and cried and said, you know, it doesn't mean anything. This graduation diploma doesn't mean anything. This graduation experience doesn't mean anything because I never, I don't deserve it. I didn't do well enough. I didn't graduate cum laude. I didn't get Latin honors. I didn't get honors anything. And my parents are here celebrating my mediocrity. Mm. My parents aren't even proud of me. They don't even give two fucks about my degree. Of course they did. Of course they did. Not to mention it was, (laughs) they, they, wanted to care about it because it was extremely expensive. (laughs) But I felt like a failure every second of walking the stage, wearing that purple gown, going out to these dinners with our families and our friends. I was like, guys, I'm a failure, I'm a fraud. Mm. I didn't do anything worth celebrating in all four years of college. And I broke down thinking I did nothing worth celebrating because everything that I ever do is compared to the fact that like, 
my parents went to Nanda in China, which is like the equivalent of a Stanford. Mm. Um, and they graduated when they were 20 and 21. Wow. My parents, I also graduated when I was 21. So I honestly like, you know, my parents went to college really young. My mom skipped two grades and my dad skipped one. Wow. My mom moved across, you know, provinces to go to college at 16. And, you know, she's the one with the history of mental illness and fucking did it. And they both got PhDs in America. I just can't express how much I can't pay that back. There's nothing I will do in my life that will compare to climbing the ladder they climbed. Mm -hmm. And I have to be okay with that and say, mm -hmm. you know what? The purpose of my life, the purpose of the sacrifices they made is so that I didn't have to do that and work that hard, but I have to make peace with that and say, maybe the purpose of my life is to just be a good person and do good things in the world. And that my kids are going to be okay no matter what, mm. which is wild, wild to me because they did not know that their kids were going to be okay no matter what. They really didn't. <laughs> Everybody cry now. <laughs> I'm like glad I put on mascara that's waterproof because. Oh my gosh, for for our listeners out there, I'm like <laughs> that was that was that hit home for me. I know, and I just. Watching all these things in the news, I think that what saddens me the most is the flattening. Like all we are is victims at the end of somebody else's fist, hand, bat, kick. Mm. But every single one of the people who got shoved down on the street and killed is a story like mine or like yours, right? Where the resiliency of the grandparents they're attacking, which I just can't believe. The resiliency of these elders who have survived war, trauma, poverty, and also lived beautiful lives full of amazing experiences and probably raised some damn amazing kids mm -hmm. to be reduced to a soundbite at six o'clock news about how you got shoved down in front of the Geary Street station is a crime. Wow, yeah. I think about, you know, what you just said about this, this immigrant debt. Um, I think about that every day of my existence. Every fucking day. Every day. And, um, and I think, you know, coming to peace with living this mediocre life, and maybe that is the point. But it's not <laughs> mediocre, right? You know, and I think that that's the thing. Yeah. I think the truth is, and this is something I've been really coming to terms with lately. Shout out to therapy. <laughs> the fact that I'm here is not mediocre. It's a fucking mm -hmm. miracle, right? Yeah. Our parents made it out of whatever situations they're in. I don't know about you, but you know, my parents escaped mm. poor communist China in 1989. Mm. My parents made it out alive and had this life for themselves. And me being here is nothing short of a miracle and me pursuing what I love and not being forced to go into any kind of work that I don't want to do because I have the luxury of choice is nothing short of a miracle. The fact that I'm talking to you right now and we're able to speak about this openly, yeah. nothing short of a miracle. That's true. Mm -hmm. We got that self-development on lock, Teresa. <laughs> it is not mediocre to be a self-actualized person, my dude. You're a hundred percent right. Now that we're kind of almost in that position that our parents were in, like thinking about the future and what we want to bring and give to the next generation. Um, and, and maybe it is that, you know, just 
human beings who are capable of being self-aware and loving towards ourselves, towards each other. Mm. And and maybe something as simple as that is, you know, enough. <laughs> it's more than enough. Yeah. I mean, my therapist says all the time, take a shot every time someone says my therapist on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll be fucked up. Um, but she says, the work that you're doing is already a service. The work that you're doing means that you're more uh, healed, self-aware. So if you do have kids, you're already going to raise them better. You're going to be able to talk about things like depression and mental illness and assault mm. and consent. The words that I was not given mm. as a child and even continuing as an adult, God knows I don't talk about these kinds of like assault and consent conversations with my mother. Yeah. Wow. I have those language. Like I have this language as a tool to protect my children if I chose to have them mm -hmm. or at least even if I can't protect them because society is crap and all of my life I'm probably going to be fighting against patriarchal society that normalizes assault 100%. all of my life mm -hmm. at least I can give them the tools to know what's right and what's wrong mm -hmm. at least I can put the words in their mouths mm -hmm. that I didn't have mm -hmm. right and you know, if you wanted to just sort of have this as a circle moment, like part of that is what I want to leave for my children is also this idea that I'm self-actualizing, I'm becoming sort of the better version of myself every day, and that I want to give this vocabulary to my kids if I have them, but also the forgiveness, the immense, mm. immense amounts of forgiveness that go into forgiving our parents Wow. for them not knowing that that's what we needed or like those were the conversations that we could have had and that could have protected me like I forgive I don't know if I forgive all the way I actually really to this day I kind of like sit in my heart you know my father especially is just not not the kind of empathetic guy that you're going to go talk about your depression with he is kind of as empathetic as a doorstop um really just lacking in the empathy department and I forgive and I forgive that I, I don't think they knew that's the language or the care or the self-awareness that I needed. And I'm working on that forgiveness every fucking day. Mm. So it becomes a circle, right? Your kids mm. will probably have to forgive you for some shit you didn't know about <laughs> that wasn't taught in school. Yeah, 100%. And so on and so forth. Well, I think that is a beautiful way to tie everything back together. Um, I have one final question for you, um, something I ask all of my guests at the end of every podcast, okay. um, which is, if you could give one advice to your younger self, what would it be? Mm. Ooh. Wow. Teresa's really coming from my neck. <laughs> It would probably have to be you are enough. Mm. You are enough every day, all the ways. You know, part of it is like being sandwiched between the Asian narrative, Asian female narrative, and the immigrant narrative, first gen narrative. All these narratives, confluenced, combined, are telling you you're not enough, you don't belong, but like you are enough, you do belong. And like, yeah. I would really like to tell myself that maybe even yesterday, <laughs> mm -hmm. my younger self, maybe even 
48 hours ago. <laughs> I think it's all, it's still applicable. Every day we're finding new ways to believe. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Um, do you want to plug yourself really quick before we say goodbye? <laughs> uh, um, if you want to hear more of me talking, um, <laughs> for better or for worse, I'm at Jane O. Sun on Instagram. Yeah, um, Jane O. S. U. N. The one in the sky. That's how I always describe myself. Um, other than that, I don't really have anything to plug. I'm like living my little life and playing the cards as they go every day. <laughs> Sometimes that's enough. <laughs> yes, that's enough. Exactly the point. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. I this really appreciated amazing. it. And that's all for today's episode. I've included the Instagram accounts mentioned by Jane in the episode description, so please go check that out. And until next time, talk to you all soon. Bye.